0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care you can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts if you enjoy listening to this podcast please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on itunes and any platform you listen to the show from and now here are your hosts joe and saul thank you for joining us on this episode of the hospice chaplaincy show my co-host joe is out of town today is on vacation but i'm here and i have a special guest for you glenn palmer welcome to the show
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, you won the Bronze Star and then the Combat Action Badge. Could you explain those awards to our listeners? Mm-hmm. Those seems like cool awards to have.
1: Right. Right. So those those um, are two awards only awarded in combat. Yeah. So I, I was awarded the Bronze Star for for service um, in combat. I was a, a retired Army chaplain, and I did um, my initial tours on active duty were combat tours with um, a, comb- a combat combat Unit out of Fort Riley, Kansas. So, and the combat action badge came for coming under direct fire. So that's why I was awarded that.
0: Uh, what does that mean? You you went in a war zone,
1: right? So I was um from. So I took. I was with a unit that took part in the invasion of Iraq. We were there for a year. Came home for ten months. Went back for a year. We had a uh, sixteen killed and a hundred wounded. Um. So I received the combat action badge for coming under fire myself, and the Bronze Star for service in combat. Um, and so I was, I was blown up five times um, on the receiving end of five roadside bombs, which um, which I uh, took out about forty percent of my hearing, um, broke a vertebrae in my back, onset arthritis. So um, all the normal injuries you might sustain in combat, I sustained. Um, during that time, yeah.
0: Wow how uh, how are you coping now?
1: So I'm I'm coping well. I um so that because of the broken vertebrae and onset arthritis through my C spine down to my lumbar and uh, also onset um sciatica. So, but I exercise regularly. I stretch. I lift weights. I work out. I go to the chiropractor. Um, the VA provides me very nice new hearing aids every three years. So. I'm doing well. I'm doing well.
0: Wow, you've had quite a journey. I think um, our listeners are going to learn a lot from your journey. Uh, where did you actually grow up? So I grew up in the town of Bath,
1: Maine, on the
0: coast of Maine. I'm always curious when I talk to uh, ministers, uh, did you always know from a young age that you'd go into ministry?
1: So that's a great question. I um. So my, my initial recollection of the Church is um, in ages of five to nine. My 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 family attended Grace Episcopal Church in Bath, Maine, and it was just I remember it's just a it's it's where I first felt my calling. So I used I was I was an acolyte, um, an altar boy. I used to dress up and play priest in my free time, and I really felt that that stirring, that call, that prompting of the Holy Spirit um, to ordain ministry. Um, And then my parents left the church when I was nine years old and that kind of, that calling went underground for about 15 years. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But my, my initial experience with church, um, a word and sacrament ministry, a community was a very positive and very wonderful one. Very warm. I found out later, you know, as a child, I didn't ask, but I asked later why they stopped, why they stopped attending church. And uh, they found out that the priest was, was gay in terms of his orientation an understanding of himself, and some members uh, drove him out of the church. Mm. So my, my parents left because they disagreed with the fact that he was driven out of the church. Yeah. Um, so, and then in high school, I would occasionally. So my grandmother, my mother's background was Catholic. My father was raised as a Baptist. Um, so they got married and became um, Episcopal. I guess to kind of meet in the middle. Yeah. But I would, I would sometimes attend church with my grandmother in high school. Um she's a very, very strong woman of faith, very loving, very caring. Um, I used to sit and watch Billy Graham with her. Um and she read books by Corey Tenboom and she would share them with me. So yeah. My, my 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 introduction to church and communities of faith as a young as a young boy is very positive, very warm, very loving.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's good also, you know, to see your parents model that sense of social justice when they felt it was unfair. Uh, to drive the priest out because of his sexual orientation,
1: right, right.
0: How did you process that as a child?
1: Well, I didn't. Um, I, I, didn't <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have the framework to do that. Yeah. Um, as I as, as, as look back and as I process it as an adult um, through counseling in college and CPE, you know, one of one of many experiences trying to process it. It formed my ministry as an active duty army chaplain for twenty years. I formed my ministry as a parish pastor for seven years prior to that. And it continues to form my ministry in terms of my understanding of grace uh, being inclusive and expansive. So uh, on active duty, after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I was a strong and passionate advocate for the, the full inclusion of our gay and lesbian soldiers and families. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's um, that's powerful. Um, So... You were out of church for about 15 years, and then you began to sense the calling uh, yes. to ministry. What prompted that?
1: So I was. Um, I graduated in high school. I enlisted in the Marine Corps for three years. I did my three years, got out when I was 20, and went off to college. Um, my senior year of college, I lived in a, uh, a room uh, boarding house with six other people. Um, one of whom we were all college students, but one of them was a forty seven year old man. This is in Maine and then the town of Gorham, maine. Um, man named Michael McGee. Michael was divorced. He had put his wife through medical school, and then she left him after kind of the reverse story you hear. he put her through medical school, and then she left him. Hmm. Um, so he moved to Maine at the age of forty seven, took a construction job just to be near his two boys. and he was um, he was strong and rooted in his Catholic faith, his Christian faith, even though he'd been through a lot of trauma and hurt and pain. And so my senior year of college, every Saturday, he invited me to go to mass with him. Hmm. Right? Every Saturday, I said, no, I'm going to hang out at the fraternity house across the street from the Catholic <laughs> Church. <laughs> and, then, um, and then one Saturday, I finally relented and said, okay, I'll go just to get him off my back. And, uh, and here I am.
0: Here I am. <laughs> So uh-huh. uh, I, went, uh,
1: I went. I went to that mass. Um, and I remember the text. So it was. I um, think you know, it was Luke four. The the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That was the gospel lesson for that day. And I was invited back into a, a community of word and sacrament, um, of love and care and acceptance. Um, through that through that man, that that broken man, who still experienced God's grace and said, "Come and see. Come and see."
0: So that was the beginning of you going back to church full-time.
1: It was, it was. and I think the Holy Spirit used that experience to uh, reaffirm my calling to ordain ministry.
0: So what steps did you take after you felt that strong uh, calling to ministry?
1: I responded to that call, and I started uh, pursuing ordination in the Catholic Church. I joined the the church, and um, I was going through the vocational and discernment process and everything was in place for me to start seminary in the fall of 1989. Mm. And then, um, so I graduated in college, um, was faithfully attending mass and involved in the life of the church. Um, became a big brother to big brothers, big sisters. Yeah. Um, the young man who I'm, I still have a good relationship with and, uh, wanted to put some, some skin on, on God's love and God's grace. Yeah. And, um, So I had a management job uh, Monday through Friday. And Saturday evenings, I was cooking at a local Italian restaurant in Portland, Maine, one of Maine's best family Italian restaurants. And uh, um, so I was cooking, and I I noticed this cute girl, this waitress, and uh, um, I messed up her order. And she told me I need more meatballs on that. And uh, here we are. We've been married 31 and a half years.
0: (laughs) Wow, so so you were in seminary, starting to be a Catholic priest.
1: Uh, I was, I was getting ready. I was doing the the, the, the process to it. So I was maybe ten months from leaving for seminary.
0: <laughs> how did you? How do you interpret that? Uh, what's that? How did you interpret uh, all these things that were going uh, on until you well, meet your I mean,
1: wife? Just, um, a, so you know it's one of those situations where sometimes the the Holy Spirit speaks to other people. So my my, my spiritual director through the Catholic process had also graduated from art school with my wife. He was a man named Father Paul Plant. He was an artist, just a beautiful priest. Um, and he pulled me aside. He took me out to breakfast and he said, he said, you know, Glenn, the gifts that would make you a good priest would also make you a good husband and father. Mm. He said, you really, you need to discern that calling. And he said, the Catholic Church if you're called to ordain ministry, obviously you can't have both those. So yeah. he encouraged me to look at the Lutheran and Episcopal traditions. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. you met
0: your wife and you left the church.
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> not not completely, but you went to a different well,
1: church. <laughs> right, 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 where, where I could fulfill those those two vocations.
0: What were your next steps?
1: Yeah, so we got married. Um, Our first child was on the way, and I applied to seminary, the, the Lutheran Theological Seminary in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, we a, we found a local Lutheran church. It was rooted in word and sacrament, just very warm and welcoming uh, community, uh, St. Ansgar Lutheran Church in Portland, Maine. And um, so I applied to seminary, get got accepted, but I, I wasn't sure, you know, I was, like I've heard, uh, you know, Joe talk about questioning my call, was I good mm-hmm. enough, did I belong, Yes. And one day, out of the blue, I was home for lunch and I got a phone call. And I picked up the phone, and it was an older member of the parish, uh, Elsie Lindblom, a daughter of Danish immigrants with a strong Maine accent. And she goes, Is this Glenn Palmer? And I said, Yes. And she <laughs> goes, This is Elsie Lindblom. And I said, Yeah, I recognize the voice. She said, You go. I go, What? She goes, You go to seminary. She goes, I know you're not sure. She goes, You'll be a good pastor. You won't be a great one, but you'll be a good one. <laughs> so off we went to the, the summer of 1991.
0: So that was the confirmation you needed to hear. That was the
1: confirmation. Yeah, but she kept me <laughs> humble, made sure I knew I'd be a good pastor, but not a great one.
0: <laughs> you know, when you speak about your faith, I notice a very consistent theme. You speak about word and sacrament. What do those elements mean to you and your theology?
1: Right, so they're, they're, they're everything to me. And, 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 the, and the, the Lutheran, I, so I, I, during my army career, I served the Lutheran and Episcopal congregations. So that rootedness in God's Word, balanced by the sacrament, um, to me is, is a holistic and balanced approach to, to ministry. Um, and, you know, to, we, we speak of both and in the Lutheran Church. Those are equal to mm-hmm. us. And by the Word of God, we would interpret the Word of God starting with Jesus you know if you if your hermeneutical lens is a target for us Jesus is the center of that target
0: mm. so how, how how does that then influence how you live it out in community and in practice
1: right so in community and practice it's um asking God to help me put some to incarnate that word right yeah put some skin on that word and that was that was how I operated as an army chaplain especially in combat, was to put some skin on God's love. It was an incarnational ministry, a words-centered ministry, um, deep in the flesh, deep in human meat. And um, and the sacraments, you know, was the the other side of that coin to, that we, Luther called the uh, baptism the royal sacrament. It reminds us of who we are and whose we are. And daily, I would share with soldiers in combat, you know, a soldier asked me one day, he goes, chaplain, how do you, how do you go outside the wire with us every day? How do you, go out into combat uh, without a weapon because you're a non-combatant and I said every day I wake up and I remind myself that I'm baptized that I know who I am and whose I am regardless of whether I live or die and then, and to be able to take uh, the Eucharist into those situations on um, you know the body and blood of Jesus fully present um, with people in the midst of the most deadly and and, and life-threatening situations was just a a beautiful ministry that extends now to my calling as a hospice chaplain.
0: Mm.
1: So I've been able in the past month to uh, baptize a sixty-year-old man dying of cancer, um, and, and I take for the for the for the Christian patients, I I offer communion. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I had a eighty-year-old uh, lady just start weeping when I offered communion because um, she said, "She chaplain, my church has forgotten me during the pandemic."
0: So, mm
1: one came by obviously but no one called and and uh, so we there's this woman dying of cancer when we shared the sacrament together and I shared with her this is a snapshot of heaven the heavenly feast and you'll be gathered with those who have gone before you and then we'll we'll all be gathered together around that banquet table and I said we get a a little glimpse of that now Mm. yeah so it, it drives and informs my ministry
0: wow putting some skin on God's love
1: Right.
0: Those are powerful words. And with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil and You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Glenn Palmer. Uh, so after seminary, what happened?
1: So after seminary, I was um, assigned to the New England Synod of the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and uh, accepted a call to be the pastor of Nativity Lutheran Church in Rockland, Maine. Home of where the, the the donut was invented. The donut invented, as we know it was invented on the spot where the church was. While I was there, we had the the celebration. Duncan Donuts National Headquarters came. We had a big celebration. So that land was initially owned. So the church was on a bluff over the Atlantic Ocean in Rockport, Maine. The land was uh, one time in the 1800s owned by a seafaring captain. He came home from sea. His wife made him what was called a fry cake, right? but it was doughy and soft in the middle. So he had her cut out a hole, and then she fried it, and that's how the donut was invented.
0: <laughs> wow! So <Yeah. laughs> that's an interesting story. So you are and your church, your church was built on that initial site.
1: It was. It was. The church was started by Finnish immigrants who came to the coast of Maine to work in the quarries.
0: <laughs> I can just imagine, you know, your church as a shrine to the yeah, Donut Legend.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a monument there on site. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a great story. So, um, so it was started by Finnish immigrants, and but then over the years, um, probably half the congregation was retirees to the coast of Maine. But it was, it was just a great experience, a great seven years. Um. If 9-11 hadn't happened, I'd probably still be there.
0: So what made it such a great experience for you?
1: So they were just—so um, because they had um, so many retirees who'd come from other places, mm. um, they were less—they weren't focused so much internally. So we, we we collapsed the committee structure, and we focused on uh, five excellent external ministries in the community, and we, we focused on them in the church doubled in size in seven years, um, I think because we focused externally. You know, we did that incarnational ministry, put mm-hmm. some skin on God's love uh, for the community and in the community.
0: So what what were they doing? Uh, what did you start to do in the community that was not done before you got there?
1: So we got, a, we got heavily involved with the local food pantry. Um, we were, the church is a few miles from the main state prison We get involved with the hospitality house next door, which would house families coming to visit their inmates, um, and those kind of ministries.
0: Oh, okay. So you became very involved as part of the heartbeat of the community.
1: Right. And and we were, so when I started, we had about 50 active worshipers and 100 when I left. So it wasn't a large congregation. That's why we picked five areas where we could do just excellent, focused, external ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: you said t- you said nine eleven was the turning point for you leaving that parish. Uh tell us why.
1: Well so I joined the the main army national guard while I was serving the parish and uh and then after nine eleven I just could kind of see what was coming. Um and I felt the stirring of the Holy Spirit to come on active duty. Um one because I sensed we were going to war and two because I sensed um I'm from a minority denomination in the chaplaincy in terms of being from a word and sacrament um kind of liberal progressive background Hmm. so i thought i could provide a balance and uh just felt that calling to go on active duty and uh, my wife and i talked about it and prayed about it and made that decision and then uh in may of 2002 we went on active duty
0: so when you went to active duty because you said you sensed there was a war coming uh, many people run away from active duty when they sense there's a war coming. What right. was it for you that wanted you to go um, in the lines of fire?
1: Because I wasn't smart enough to run the other way. <laughs> 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 that, that's, that's a great question because, um, you know, people have asked me that. and I'm, It's one of those things where if I could have seen it ahead of time, there's no way I would have gone on active duty. You'd have to be crazy to do that. Um, so but it was a calling, and I responded to that call. And, um, you know, I was on active duty nine months, and there I was taking part in the invasion of Iraq. And uh, so my wife and I just took it one assignment at a time. You know, And then every assignment we discerned whether we should stay or not, and it ended up making it a career.
0: So did you go in as a chaplain or as a, an Army staff?
1: No, so I went in, um so I did, uh, between high school and college, so I graduated from high school when I was 17 and went in the Marines for three years. And then again, I went to college and seminary and worked. And then uh, So I, I went on active duty as a chaplain.
0: As a chaplain, yeah.
1: As a chaplain, yeah, with the rank of captain.
0: So um, I can imagine the context, you know, from a church environment to being active duty in Iraq, uh, the context is totally different.
1: It was can you good. share
0: with us the difference and what surprised you?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, as a parish pastor, my ministry was focused on preaching, um, visitation. It was a small church, it was a rural church, so it wasn't real busy. I did, you know, a lot of visitation, but um, when you become an army chaplain, you're suddenly the pastor for 500 or 600 soldiers and their families. Um, so I did more counseling probably in my first couple months than I'd done in seven years on active duty. Um, you know, the suicide prevention uh, relationship issues were a big one um, kind of stress counseling you know getting ready to go to war coming back from war and then the kind of ministry you do during combat um, I, I it's just incarnational ministry right it's, it's, it's going where your flock goes it's going where they go uh, doing what they do except not being a combatant and it's, uh, it's being a light in the darkness. So, so for instance, um, you've heard of Abu Ghraib, right? The yeah. situation happened there?
0: Yeah.
1: So the summer of 2003, our base was down the road from the prison. And sometimes I would just randomly show up at 2 or 3 in the morning to jump on the trucks when our soldiers were taking enemy prisoners of war down to the prison just to prevent them from crossing a line um, and doing something they might later regret, or or that would cause moral injury, right? Yeah, um, doing something their mother told them not to do, because they were homesick, they were hot, they were tired, they were under threat. So that ministry of presence, that 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 has always formed me as a parish pastor, as an army chaplain, and now as a hospice chaplain.
0: So, what were the major struggles of the young men and women in the military during that time?
1: Well, so you um. You know you're going to be gone from home for a year, right? So you have no control over what happens while you're you're gone. Um, every day, you go what's called outside the wire, outside the base. You're at risk from being for being blown up, for being shot, being horribly wounded, um, distressed. The you know 24/7 operations. It's just kind of a relentless, relentless environment for a year at a time. And then knowing you'll go home, but you may go back again. 10 months to a year later, knowing what you're facing. So it, it it takes its toll, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically.
0: So when they come to you, what do they say?
1: They just they just want to talk. You know, and they come to me, but I would go to them too. I I go to the remote bases, the remote outposts, um, do what I call a ministry of walking around.
0: Yeah.
1: And just and just build relationships with them. So they trusted me. Um I used to um Every night outside my little hooch, as we called it, um, I would sit in the lawn chair and and, and with a with a because you could get Cuban cigars, so I'd smoke a Cuban cigar for an hour. With, <laughs> my wife sent me Starbucks coffee, so I'd French press of coffee, smoke <laughs> the cigar, and hold court. And the soldiers would just come and talk, and we'd smoke cigars and take care of each other.
0: <laughs> what did you learn about yourself?
1: So I learned that that was um. That I have a gift and a calling and a passion for that kind of ministry. That incarnational um that ministry of presence. That that that's how I'm built, that's how I'm wired. Mm. Um, and that I have a have a have a gift for that. It, it, this is a strange it's it's hard for people to understand that the experience of having done 16, having done last rites for 16 soldiers, 16 memorial ceremonies, um almost getting killed myself very close on one occasion um, has made me, has led me to where I am today. I, I wouldn't have seen that, you know, beforehand, but that experience with being comfortable um, with death, and being able to wade into the midst of death has made me a good hospice chaplain.
0: So was the major cause of death being shot or suicide?
1: So in our unit, the major cause of death was being shot and being blown up hmm. by roadside bombs. We we didn't have any suicides. Close, um, and I was able to intervene because, um, you know, when Jesus sends his uh, disciples out two by two,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, I think he does that so they take care of each other. And, and the Army has a battle buddy system, so you always have a battle buddy when you're in combat. And the battle buddies would come to me and say, hey, sir, um, I think so and is in trouble. But one day I walked in to a soldier's living space right as he was putting the weapon into his mouth and was able to prevent him from, from pulling the trigger. Um, another another time I remember, a soldier came to me about his buddy, and this, this young man was Samoan uh, and was in a gang in Los Angeles, um, and they thought he was suicidal. So they brought him to me, and he had he confessed that he'd been in a gang fight um, had shot a guy thought he killed him and ran away and joined the army so he was living with this moral injury and he never confessed it and never shared it so he shared it with me and I gave him absolution and forgiveness and, and I said now go do something with your life yeah so to, to be able to do that in, in that environment I wouldn't I wouldn't I don't want to ever do it again but I wouldn't trade that experience for anything
0: so for the guy who had a gun in his mouth and he was about to blow himself, what did you say that stopped him from committing suicide?
1: I, um, well, I think he would have if I hadn't walked in at that moment. And I said, just, I said tell me what hurts. Tell me what hurts. Mm-hmm. He did. In his case, um, there was some mental illness. So we were able to get him, get him out of theater and get him sent back to the States for, to get the help he needed.
0: So part of your job was to identify those intense issues of mental um, mental health.
1: Right. To, to identify them, but also through a ministry of presence and building relationships to be available and approachable for soldiers when they knew somebody else was in trouble. That's typically how I found out when somebody was in trouble or suicidal. Somebody their their buddy would tell me, Hey chaplain, can you go talk to so and so? I'm
0: concerned, I'm worried. Were you the only chaplain for 500 soldiers?
1: I was, I was, I was.
0: So what kind of training prepared you for that?
1: Absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great, I mean, so (laughs) let me say, so my my theological education, I received a fantastic uh, classical theological education at a Lutheran seminary, and the Lutheran tradition is rooted and that ministry of presence, that incarnational ministry, focused on grace upon grace upon grace. So theologically, I was prepared for that. But, um, And I did a two-week training session at, uh, at the Brooks Army Medical Center in um, San Antonio. where in the emergency room. They brought in a lot of gangbangers who'd been shot. So that was kind of like a combat training. But the actual experience of combat, there's no way you can train for that. I mean, you could put people through intense training and intense situations, but once those bullets start flying, it's a whole different world.
0: But you see, even if you had the best theological training, was there room for trauma education?
1: The only... There was room, but I don't remember receiving a lot. Um, I had CPE between my first and second year, um, and that was at a a nursing home. So there wasn't a lot of trauma. So... um, I had not been exposed to a lot of trauma before combat.
0: So our theological education systems then have a way of failing us, then, because you get accepted to do ministry in the military, and all you see around you is trauma.
1: That's a great question. That's a, that's a good. I mean, it's a valid point. I, um, you know, the yeah. CPE, if you do like a residency in the trauma center or, or or unit, I suppose that would prepare you. But I didn't have that
0: experience. Yeah. And this is, yeah. this is my issue with the current theological educational system, where they're actually preparing you well for parish ministry in a church. Mm. But these days, the opportunity for ministers to work is beyond the church walls has grown so much. You can work in the military, in hospice, mm-hmm. hospital. So the education is still behind, still yeah. <laughs> targeted towards parish ministry. And here you have an opportunity, an opportunity to serve God in the military, but you have to find your own ways to train yourself to help these people dealing with trauma.
1: Yeah, so that's um that's a good point. And I would say also, um, I mean I, I love I love my denomination. they've been very good and very supportive, but it is still focused on parish ministry, right? So I'm technically on leave from call. Because I retired from the army, did a VA chap residency, now I'm a hospice chaplain. And my and my response to that is this is a calling. I'm not on leave from call. I'm just not serving a parish. Yeah. This is a calling. Yeah. So yeah, so the the tail's still wagging the dog on a lot of that stuff. And um, as you know, the chap the field of chaplaincy is growing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that would take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saul and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation. So um, after... Uh, the military ministry. How long were you there?
1: So, um, 20, 21 and a half years total. You know, when I was going through the retirement process, I applied for residency in the VA and was accepted. Um, so, I let my denomination know. And once I officially retired, they they called and said, Well, we, we don't know how to categorize you. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know what to say to that. So, they put me on, on leave from call for educational purposes. And I, I shared the um, I know you have to have a category. I said that offends me because I spent 20 years as a chaplain and now I'm doing a residency, the VA. This is a calling. This yes. is, I'm not on leave from call. How do you, if you define a call only because you're serving a parish, that's very limiting to the to God's grace at work through the Holy spirit. I mean, that,
0: yeah. Uh, and that, that really caught my attention because I've seen this, um, I was confronted not long ago by a friend who said, if you're working in hospice as a chaplain, then you're not in ministry. And I mm-hmm. see that common trend where people think that ministry is only working in a parish context. And mm-hmm. I want us to challenge that myth because that is not the case. You're doing ministry. Like you said, you had baptism. You're, doing, <laughs> you're offering communion. Right. Uh, you, all, all, the, all the sacraments of the church, you're, mm-hmm. you're practicing ministry.
1: Right. And, and I'm putting skin on God's love yeah. um, for families and patients while while they're dying. And, um, you know, and, 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 and the, the, it's a model of the church is bigger than the construct of my, my singular denomination. Yeah. It is It is church. It feels like church to me when I, when I, when I provide that ministry of presence that when we, when I baptize a man a day before he dies and I'm, and then I'm there with his family when he dies and then, then when I share the Eucharist with them, not just that feels like that feels like church to me.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the context of ministry has become much broader than the four corners of the church. I think it is time you know people begin to accept that that any kind of chaplaincy is ministry. Oh, yeah. There's no difference. Uh, you don't, the minister is not only the pastor in the local church.
1: Right. Sometimes my my, denom- my... My discussion with officials at my denomination feels like the Titanic sinking, but they're still rearranging the deck chairs in terms of the <laughs> construct of ministry.
0: <laughs> so um then after your clinical pastoral education, did you work in the hospital or you went to hospice straight away?
1: So I this is a great so this is, um I retired um, and a few weeks later I had a month off and I started the VA residency. And I thought I, was gonna, I wanted to be a VA chaplain. I, I, I was certain that's where God was calling me. And um, so I was assigned to the critical care unit to the hospice wing at the VA. And I quickly realized this is, I, I, have, I have a gift for this. I have an aptitude for this. And it clicked one day. I was sitting with a, a 71-year-old uh, Vietnam veteran. He was on life support. Survived the battle of Hamburger Hill right? as an 18-year-old young black man from the South, drafted, sent to Vietnam, survives the battle of Hamburger Hill. Then his wife talked to me about the racism he experienced coming back to the South. Mm-hmm. He survived all this, but he's on life support. And i'm with his wife of you know almost 50 years, and she just doesn't want to let go. Mm-hmm. He says, Chapman, I, I I feel like he needs to know I did everything that I could for him. Mm-hmm. I said, "Ma'am, you know, like, I think he knows that." You know, we talked about the do not resuscitate, and I shared with her, as did the nurses, what it would look like if they tried to resuscitate her husband. And mm-hmm. and I think that was kind of an eye opener. And she eventually agreed. And, and um, I said, "It's okay to give him permission to go, right?" And I've heard you talk about that, and I've experienced that as a hospice chaplain. It's okay to give him permission to go. You've done everything you can. And she did and and, and he died, and the, um it was it was a good death, it was a meaningful death. Um, she journeyed with him through that process, and I, um she had a strong faith and so and it clicked to my to me that i I, I have a gift for this I'm, I'm, I'm not I was able to wade in to that situation with the with the ministry of presence and and hold her story, her sacred story mm. and her husband's and honor of that, mm. and then lead her to a place where she she could let go and let him go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then that—that that was for you. You felt like that was your official calling to hospice ministry.
1: I did. So something clicked. Yeah. Something clicked, and I felt like I was um. So one of the ways I process what I experience is, is I, I write these haikus. Yeah. You know, haiku, Japanese haiku, seven verse, uh, five, seven, five, five verses, seven verses, five verses. Um, and, and I wrote one about that experience that I felt when I was in high school, I read Beowulf, the classic Beowulf. And one of the, one of the characters is the the it's the, um, it's the border walker. right? So I felt like I was journeying with this person as they walked the border between life and death back to life. I, I wrote a haiku about it. I wrote um, Chaplin, Border Walker of Grace. Meandering in the darkness, in transitional space, lament, death, grief expressed, life, hmm. and, I, and I felt like that had encompassed that experience with her, and I something clicked. I and I shared with my wife and said, "I don't think I feel called to VA chaplaincy. Yeah, I feel called the hospice chaplaincy. Yeah. So here I am.
0: So was it easy then to get a job as a hospice chaplain?
1: So evidently, there must be, yes, it was incredibly easy. I, cu- I couldn't believe it. I submitted one resume and got a job. Um, <laughs> you know, so I submitted some resumes, and I had a job, and I've continued to hear from um, recruiters and headhunters. Evidently, it's an expanding field, or maybe not a lot of people have a calling to it. And, and, you know, it's a hard ministry for sure. So. That's
0: true, because you're dealing with death and dying every day.
1: Every day, every day, um, yes.
0: So how, was, how is hospice similar to military chaplaincy, and how is hospice different from military chaplaincy for you?
1: Yeah, so it is similar in that it is a ministry of presence, right? It's a mm. ministry of presence. You To be a good military chaplain, you have to be comfortable in your own skin, rooted in your theology, know who you are and what you're about, and you have to be able to practice a ministry of presence. You have to go to where people are, right, and put some skin on God's love, mm-hmm. even if you never mention God, right? Yeah, you have, you have to incarnate that. And it's, I find it the same with chaplaincy. I mean, I mean, um, hospice, in the hospice. No, I in my tradition, I wear a collar, so people know why I'm there.
0: Yeah,
1: um, there was one patient told me. It helps us know whose side you're on. But yeah, I think both you have to have it's a strong ministry of presence. Mm. Yeah. I think
0: everyone who is listening to this episode has had you say the word presence a lot of times. Right. But sometimes presence can also be bad. Sometimes they don't need your presence. What do you do then?
1: Right. So that's a good question. So I have experienced, so in the past, so th- in the three months since I, I responded to this call, um, we've had five patients who are children, right? Mm. Of those five families, only one let me in. Um, because I get it. I get it. They they keep the world small. They keep it protected. Um, and they want to appreciate every moment. They may, may already have a, a a Spiritual support system, so I know I don't take that personally, I understand it, and I let them know I'm here if they need me. Um, mm. versus, um, you know, families of older patients dying of cancer who, who lived a the life they're very open to mm. what I bring to the table,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, presence then involves more than just being there, but discerning the needs of the family, and That's if so. they don't need you there, you also honor that,
1: right, right. And and being comfortable enough in your own skin not to take that personally.
0: Yeah,
1: it's not about you.
0: So, what makes you wake up every morning to go back and back into hospice ministry?
1: Yeah, it's just the. Um, I I think it's the ability um. To, to to be present to um, to 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 make a difference to help people find some meaning, um, as they journey. So there's a great saying by um, Eckhart Tolle. He says, the secret of life is to die before you die and to find there is no death. So to help people to be part of that experience as they, they embrace the fact that they and their loved one are dying and you journey with them um, from life to life, from, from to, to find some love and some grace and some meaning as they die and they journey back to the loving arms of God. It's just, it, it drives me. It, it's, it's a passion. I, I didn't see it coming, Saw so I did not see this coming yeah. even six months ago. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I feel like my, the Holy Spirit has used my whole life up until this point to prepare me for this ministry. It's become a labor of love.
0: And you embody that really well. I talk to family and friends. And they're like,
1: what do you do? And I tell them, they're like, oh, I couldn't do that. Yeah. I said, well, yeah. I do it and I love it, and it's become a, a passion and a labor of love to journey with people, just to journey with people. I feel honored it's, it's a
0: gift. So, what are your final thoughts?
1: I love the concept of story, right? As a chaplain, I feel like I'm honored and blessed to enter into the sacred stories of others. So, this is one I wrote. I said, uh, God of story, help me to hold sacred stories well and good to midwife meaning. From grief. Hmm. You know, and I share with people that you grieve because you loved. Hmm. Grieve because you love. And to, to help them find some meaning in the midst of that grief. Um, and this is one I wrote it's a dreaming, God inspired, visionability, not the end, yet true life behold, I make all things new. And uh, you know, I find in my experience that people with some kind of belief and faith system. Um, have the sense that when they die, they're as, as Julian of Norwich said, they're falling into the arms of love. Mm. I don't know if they can see that end as full of love and light and grace, and, and mostly people seem to do that.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So as an army chaplain, I only I got to be with soldiers while they lived, and then they were dead. But I never journeyed with them through that dying process. Mm. Can I tell a quick
0: story? But, yeah. Yeah.
1: So um, before I retired, I was the chief of training development division for the U.S. Army Chaplain Center and School. They sent me to the Chaplain Innovation Lab, the first gathering in July of 2019 to represent the Army. So I got involved with the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab. Um, And then when I accepted this hospice call through the Facebook page, I said, does anybody know of any good websites for, for hospice chaplains? And so I said, Someone said, Oh, yeah, the hospicechaplaincy.com. And I looked it up and I was hooked. And I listened, <laughs> I, I listened to the episodes while I work out and I just, uh, I love what you do. It's just, um, feels like a home to me.
0: Thank you very much, brother. <laughs> That's really a good story. <laughs>
1: uh, and it's part of our tithing to, su- to support you financially.
0: Uh, thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. That was our conversation with Glenn Palmer. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production.
1: For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.